Welcome to the Southridge Church Podcast. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we want you to stay connected with us. You can find us on sanjose.cc or subscribe to the podcast. Well, take your Bibles if you brought one to the book of John chapter number 8. John chapter number 8. And I'm going to... uh, just recap the last several weeks where we've been and what we've got going on. And uh, we, we every so often will do a series entitled, Who is Your One? And we believe that we all have one person that we can win for Christ. There's one person that we can tell about uh, heaven, let them know that Jesus loves them, died on a cross for their sins, and gives them a home in heaven. And so it's very important to our church that we be busy leading people to Christ in this day and age that we live in. And so on Wednesdays, our life groups meet together. And one of them asked a question in my life group. They said, you know, I get it that we need to talk about Jesus. And that's, that's, I, I get it. I want to. I just don't feel like I know enough. And that's the hard part about evangelizing or witnessing or outreach, isn't it? Feeling like you don't know enough. You know, because many times we're afraid that somebody's going to ask us a question that we don't know the answer to. And so it kind of locks us into fear of ever sharing our faith with people. Because we're afraid that they're going to ask us a question that we don't have the answer to. And I try to tell them, hey, you know what? They're already on their way to hell. Whatever you say is not going to make it worse. And I know that seems like, whoa, whoa, yeah, you're not going to make it worse, so just take that off the burner for a second. But here's what you do need to realize. When it comes to the questions, if they're asking you, how come dinosaurs aren't in the Bible, they're, they're probably not really focused on Jesus. They're looking to kind of just have an argument. Or if they say, hey, did Adam have a belly button? Once again, they're probably looking for an argument. Or if they're asking, who married Abel? Like, where, where did that, how did that happen, you know? And many times we're afraid that we're not going to have the right answer. Can I let you know this, that the reality is we're just one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. That's all it is. It's here's what Jesus did for me, and I want to share what he can do for you. It's that simple. We're the ones that make it complex. And Satan, really, what he does is he tries to almost scare us that we've got to know all the answers. Trust me, I went to four and a half years of seminary, and I, I learned a lot. But you're never going to know all the answers. I even took a comparative religions class. I've got a book on my shelf that says all the religions of the world that we had to do reports on and studies on and things like that. You're still not going to know enough. So you're going to have to trust that God is going to give you the right answer for when you know it, for when it's time. But I want to dive in this morning because I want to let you know that our church staff has kind of been working through something that we call the lanes of learning. And it's relevant to what we're going to talk about today because it's a simple triangle. And if you're a note taker, I would love for you to pull out those notes that you received on your way in. And you can draw a triangle too. You can draw this too. It's it's fun to doodle in church. Some of you are like, that's what I do every Sunday. I sit here and I doodle until you're done. And, uh, you know, or I do hangman or something. But it's called the lanes of learning and it's sometimes we could say, well, why are we always about evangelism? Why is it one thing after another? Evangelism, 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 outreach, outreach. And let me just start by saying, you know, there's three markers that kind of identify most ministries. They kind of land in one of three categories, by and large. There's slight differences. But by and large, 
churches will land in one of three categories. So it will land in this first category, SF. You're like, San Francisco Giants and 49ers. Come on, there we go. That's right. That's not what SF stands for. It stands for spiritual formation, or you could label it discipleship, or you could label it Bible study, in-depth, deep, the Greek, the Hebrew, Aramaic, Latin, pig Latin, uste, auste, all that stuff. And, and, and that, that some people, they, they like that. And there are some churches, man, that's, that's what they are. You go to that church, and, and, and every Sunday you're going to learn the Greek and the Hebrew, and you're going to learn some of that every Sunday because they love to go deep. They're all about spiritual formation. They're, they're all about, man, you need to get in the Word and journal and, man, get out in nature and just, just get out there. Spiritual formation, that, that's big, right? Spiritual disciplines they might talk about. And, and, and you might really love Dallas Willard, John Orper, people like that, John Mark Comer. Those are people that you're like, yes, those are my people. And then there's another group. This group's a fun group. These people keep church fun. This is what I call the uh, HG crowd, the Holy Ghost crowd. Yes, the Holy Ghost. Spirit-led. You could, do, you could say they're a little bit more charismatic, all right? Charismatic means you don't know what you're about to get in on a Sunday. Man, like some of you, you, you like the HG crowd. This isn't the home, home oh, HGTV. No, no, no. This is the Holy Ghost crowd. And man, some of you like that. And some of you are like, man, angel worship is good, but it'd be better if you had no shoes on. If you were just free in the spirit. And, you know, and, and if you just went on and on in worship. And then, and then you know, if, if you had some people with some flags going back and forth. And then if you had some tambourines for us on the front row. And then if a couple of us were running some laps, you know, and then if some people got slain in the spirit, they just fall over in the aisles, you know, and then somebody comes and covers them with the sheet, you know, like that, that that's the Holy Ghost. Because man, that's, that's when you know you're having church and, and, and you want church to go on for hours and hours because that's a Holy Ghost crowd, man. And I won't name names, but you've been to some churches that they the Holy Ghost crowd, you know? And then you got a third group. The third group, and this is one. I don't know what happened to my red pen for a second. There it went. And this is what I would call the evangelism outreach soul winning crowd. Okay? They're all about the lost. Now, here's the deal all of us lean towards a corner. You have a preference. And can I tell you what? There's nothing wrong with any corner. One is not better than the other. They're different, but they're not better. However, you and I have a preference. All right, let's have some fun. Let's kind of find out where our preference is. Miss Mimi, what would be your preference? Oh, she's picking two. No, no, no. We're going to go with your first one. Can't have two. Just kidding. All right. Just kidding. Just kidding, Miss Mimi. No, no, no. We're going to put you over there, but we know what you mean. Many of us would have a first and second. You, you, that's true. Which he, that, that's it. It's just for my illustration, she kind of took it a little bit and got there faster. Doug, wh- where would you lean, Doug? Spiritual point. I knew that about you. A pastor's son, his life group, they go deep. I just figured. Yep, yep. That's, that's where, you, where you are. Okay, Doug, here's where we, here's where we split things up now. Miss Lisa, where would you lean? Same as your husband? Oh, they're, oh, I was thinking they'd be, you know, at each other's like, no, in a Holy Ghost crowd. And they go back and she makes Doug play that bass even louder. You know, go play, you know, and everything. So, all right. 
Lisa is also here. All right, there we go. Okay, all right. Now, Brother DJ Curtis, where would you land? HG, there we go. All right. Miss Shannon? Oh, there we go. Ooh, see what I mean? Berean. That's when you know they go deep. That, that, there you go. So Shannon's up here. And then, but, but there's a good balance there. We never bump heads. They never bump heads. They're in two different lanes, you know? One's running laps and twirling and everything. It's great. Okay. And then DJ Curtis. All right. Uh, let's see. All right. Robert, where would you land? Holy Ghost, there we go. All right, Robert is over there. Okay. Claudia, would you land the same as your husband? Probably. She's saying probably, so we got, we're going to do a plus, plus. All right, here we go. I can keep going with this illustration. I love it. Can you see we're all different? Where do you think I land if you just had to shout it out? Right in the middle, right in the middle. Yes. There we go. Doug got it. Doug got it. There we go. Right here. I'm over here. Here's the deal. We all have a corner, and we all prefer one corner over the other. Now, here's the deal. That doesn't mean one is right and one is wrong. doesn't mean one is better than the other. Here's what it means. You have to be aware of your preference because you are going to pull everybody in your sphere of influence to that corner. If you're leading a small group, you're going to end up. It's just natural. It's not right or wrong. It's just what your bent is. Now, here's the other thing. As a ministry leader, as a pastor, I will pull it into my corner. But the goal is what DJ Curtis said. It's not picking a corner, but pursuing center. Let me say it again. The goal is not to pick a corner, but to pursue center. While we have a lot of churches say, no, 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 it's all about spiritual formation. No, it's all about the Holy Ghost. No, it's all about evangelism. The, the reality is, it's here. Now, watch what happens. This is cool. You see... God is about growth and maturity. Amen? So as you grow and mature, look what happens. You start touching every corner. Because that's the way the Holy Spirit works. That's the way the Holy Spirit wants you. The Holy Spirit, and you could say, this is the head right here. This affects the head. This, the heart, the emotions. Ours is the hands. The body of Christ. We're unified, right? So guess what? If I'm a Christian that's saying, hey, I want to pursue God with everything I got, and I'm going to pursue him, guess what's going to happen? You're going to grow in all of these, although some of them you won't need to work as much because it's natural. I don't have to try to talk to people that don't know Jesus. I don't have to try to invite people to church. As a matter of fact, I run out of outreach cards. As a matter of fact, everywhere I go, people kind of end up knowing he's a pastor. We want to go check out his church. We want to go there. See, that's the goal. Now, Hal, his big mentor friend, he's Planted churches, pastor churches, led small churches, big churches, medium, mega churches. And he said this this week as we were talking about this. Because I want you to know that we're not an ADD church. Sometimes you're like, we're over here and then we're over here. No, no, no. It's we're trying to develop all of these. And it's real hard to just park in one because every Sunday there are people that this is the very first time that this book has ever opened. This is the first time they've ever been to church. And because we're a startup church, we're not meeting in a traditional church they feel a little bit more comfortable like I could do that I could do that and so they attend and so we've got that environment now understand something that happens as we grow these are these are all happening but I was talking to Hal and he said here's the deal he said oftentimes to be balanced in this you're going to have what's called the 70 30 rule 70 30 because as a Christian 
you naturally are going to be drawn to two corners, naturally. And this is where Miss Mimi already stole my thunder. Because where did she say she was drawn? She said, I'm a mix between the Holy Ghost and spiritual formation, which is if you are a Christian, you're going to be drawn to those two. Now you say, well, I don't know if I'm drawn to the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost is weird. No, he's not weird. He's wild. He is wild, but he isn't weird. What the Holy Spirit wants to do is wild. It's like the wind. You don't know where it comes or where it's going. You just set the sail and hang on, baby, because the Holy Spirit's going to take you. Because that's how the Holy Spirit operates. The Holy Spirit is wild. And he wants to do some great things in your life. And yet, these are the two natural ones that we often, most churches, have inverted. And it's a 70-30, which is why churches are on the decline. Because the lost person doesn't know that they need to be drawn to the Holy Spirit. They don't know that. They don't know. The lost person doesn't know like, hey, I should really know Greek and Hebrew. And I should really know that the word love in the Bible has uh, three little firm. There's phileo love. and There's agape love. And there's eros love. They're not thinking that. They're thinking, I got this hole in my heart that I'm trying to fill with drugs, alcohol, and relationships. And it's not working. What will fill this? And Ecclesiastes 3 says God has put eternity in their hearts, meaning we all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. Why is it so important we be 70-30, 70% on evangelism? Because you and I will naturally drift towards these two. These two happen because you're in small groups. You are serving. You are in prayer. You are in Bible reading. These can happen. Here's what happens when a church says, we're going to focus primarily on spiritual formation, which most churches in America have parked in this camp. And I will say this, evangelize or fossilize. So you'll see a lot of dead and dying churches that are very deep. Can I tell you what it feels like to go into church like that? Here's what it feels like. It feels like back in the day when a family member got a projector screen and their vacation photos on those little things, you hold them up to the light and you can kind of see the picture. But if you put a little slide projector and you hear that click sound, I would laugh because in the 90s, we'd have missionaries come from over, overseas. And my dad would be like, did you just see what they gave me? They want, they want to show slides. Okay, do you know where the term slides came from? Apple and, and, and Microsoft did not invent slides. It's pictures that literally were slides that would, you'd see them on the projector. And it's like those old family videos where we're all there to sit and watch your family video. The reality is, though, we're not a member of your family. So you know what that means for us? We're bored. We didn't get to go on your beach vacation. We didn't, we didn't ever go to Myrtle Beach. We didn't ever go to Sedona, Arizona. We didn't go to the Grand Canyon with you. We didn't get to go to Alaska with you. We didn't go to Disney World, so we don't care. We have no investment in that experience, so it's not, there's no nostalgia there for us. So when we bring lost people in that don't know Jesus, and we park it here, they're saying, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, so I don't know any of this. I don't understand any of this. And then when you start talking about the Greek and the Hebrew, and then you make Bible jokes, I'm just like, pfft, goes right over their head. So this is why it's so important and why we will emphasize something. And it's not because we're an ADD church. We understand these two are important. We are not neglecting the Holy Spirit and we are not neglecting spiritual formation because we've all met those churches that are a mile wide and an inch deep, all baby Christians. But here's the reality. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man is come to go deep in spiritual formation. That's not what the verse says. The Son of Man has come to teach you all about the Holy Spirit. He didn't say that till John 14. To seek and to save that which is lost. That's his primary mission. As a matter of fact, he called it the Great Commission. He didn't say, hey, Holy Ghost movements, charismatic movements, they have their place, they're important. 
Very important. As a matter of fact, we need to come back to some of these things because we're missing out on the power in the church. This is where the dunamis comes from. This is where we have the pneuma of the spirit. This is where we get that rhema. This is, we need more of this, not less. But it seems like we're getting less of this and we're getting more of this, spiritual formation. And so we at Southridge understand if you seem like, man, we're doing a 70, we are going to lean towards this because we live in the Bay Area where there's 8.2 million people and only 70, and, excuse me, and 97% have no religious background. They don't go to any religious gathering. So 3% gather anywhere. We have our jobs cut out for us. So we want to see lost people saved, baptized, discipled, and growing and maturing in the faith. We're not here to simply go to some church and say, we're here to steal all your people. That is just sheep swapping. That's just shuffling the same deck of cards. We are after reaching people that don't know Jesus. That's why we're going to put an emphasis on evangelism, soul winning, and outreach. We've got to. We've got to. So when you understand this, it helps us. Now, with that long introduction, please go to John chapter number 8 because that's why we've been in this series about reaching people. Now, how many of you... You know the story of John 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery. It's a simple message. It's one, if you've grown up in the church, I think it'll come back to your mind pretty quickly. But the reality is this, that Jesus loved and loved people who he knew would not love him back. And that's profound. Jesus loved and loves people who would never love him back. And in John 8, we see this story, and it says in verse number 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. In verse 2, now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. The Bible says in that first part of verse number 2, now early in the morning. Please understand, the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. So we believe that when he said early in the morning, this is either between 6 a.m. and 8 a.m. You say, why is that important? It's going to be important in just a minute. It's 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. is about the time we believe Jesus is teaching. It says, and the people came to him, sat down, and he taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Hold on. Jesus is teaching between 6 and 8. And they caught her. Now, you need to understand something. Catching her meant that they were waiting, watching. This actually meant that they set a trap for her. They knew what was about to go down. They they baited, they tricked, they trapped her, and now they're going to punish her. So this is a messed up situation that even Jesus knows. Hey, something's fishy here. I just started teaching, and already you're bringing this person? Already? This just happened? We caught him in the very act? Let's continue reading verse number four. They said to him, Teacher, this one was caught in adultery, the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. What are they talking about? You see, Rome occupied Jerusalem. They were under Rome's authority. And Rome's authority meant they could not execute anybody without Rome's permission. Which is why when the Pharisees and the scribes got Jesus, they had to go to Herod and Pontius Pilate and get permission to execute him because they knew that they could not execute somebody lest they incur Rome's wrath. So they're trying to trick Jesus because if he says, you can't execute this woman because you're under Roman rule, they would say, well, then you're breaking your own law. Leviticus 20, verse number 10. It's a trick. 
They're trying to bait and trap Jesus. Let's continue reading. So then we continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down, he wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw that no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but in the light of life. I've got a very simple message. It's not long. It's very simple. It's very short. I love this. Verse number 11, Jesus asked her a question. Where are those that condemn you? And what does she say? There's none. I want you to get this. Condemnation is the greatest threat to you and I. Not because it comes from somebody else, because it's always with us. It's always with us. Condemnation is always there. What we said, what we did, where we went, how we treated somebody, all of that condemnation comes flooding back because Satan knows this. Satan loves to use our past material against us and he brings it up in condemnation. But then not only does the devil bring up our past in our face, then we've got people around us who also condemn us. You not showing up at work on time or not doing a good enough job, you face condemnation from a boss. Some of you in a marriage relationship, you can face condemnation. Some of you in a family situation, how you raise your kids or how you take care of your spouse, you'll face condemnation where you work, where you don't work, where you get your education, where you didn't get your education. Condemnation is everywhere these days. And can I say this? Condemnation keeps people from Christ. It doesn't draw them to it. But how many people in religious circles, you face condemnation. But I love this. Jesus didn't condemn. He doesn't condemn her. Although he could have condemned her. Although he had every right to. You see, in this passage, here's this woman. She was caught. She's not innocent. But here's what's interesting. In Leviticus 20 verse number 10, it says the adulterer and the adulteresses shall be stoned. Wait a minute, where's the guy? It takes two to tango. How come there's just one? Where's the other one? This is a trap. This is a trick. This is a messed up situation. And Jesus sees right through it. He sees exactly what these guys are doing. Many speculate that the guy is actually one of the people that's bringing her to be stoned. That this is the whole thing. Now, in Levitical law, not to get too in-depth, but understand this. You had to have two eyewitnesses to corroborate that they were doing it. Now, eyewitnesses doesn't mean I'm tracking them on my, on my iPhone. And yeah, they went to this hotel. They went to this Airbnb. Yeah, we caught them walking in. No, 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 no. It's much more explicit than that. It's much more detailed. They have to see a whole lot more than them just walking into the room. They have to watch. And how kind of gross is that then they're going to trap this person bait and trap this person here this is this is a terrible situation and jesus sees right through it and then they want to heap this condemnation on this woman who isn't innocent but at the same time not deserving of this to be hauled out in front of people and here condemnation how many times do we feel like when it comes to leading people to jesus that we should condemn them 
And there's people out there that even in my heart, I have to be humble before God and say, Lord, why do I have this condemnation towards that person that may act different, vote different, have a different flag that's different than me, a different bumper sticker, and all of a sudden I want to condemn them for a lifestyle? I want to condemn them for a choice? And then I'm going to try to preach love and Jesus to them? How successful will we be? Not very. But yet somehow we feel like it's our job to do the condemning. Like it's our job to bring the condemnation. And that's what these men thought. We're going to bring the condemnation. And we as Christians sometimes can be instruments of condemnation to people. This is why I think culture in the world would look at the church and say, you know what? I've got enough condemnation. I don't need to go to church. Thank you very much. You know, I talk to so many people, they will say things like this, tongue in cheek. If I walk in there, that place is going to burn down. I'm going to get struck by lightning. You ever heard that saying? Some people say that. What are they really saying? I already know I'm bad. I don't need to feel worse about my sin. And the reality is that's the farthest thing from what God actually wants to do. Because here's Jesus. Here's this woman. She's in the middle of this crowd. We don't even know if they're allowing her to be covered by anything. She's here. She's most likely betrothed or married and has children. And here she is in front of this situation. And Jesus, what is the first thing that Jesus does? He kneels down. He said, yeah, because he's about to write the Ten Commandments. And he's about to write, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. He's about to write this other commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill. He's about to write that, and then, and then he's going to write little arrows pointing at people. That, that's what he, Folks, that's more condemnation. That's just more condemnation. No, no, that's not what he did. People speculate that he did. But think about this. Here's a woman in the most vulnerable situation, most humiliating situation, that, yes, she's wrong, and this is what we taught about. There is punishment and consequences. Yeah, there's, there's a consequence for her choice. That's why she's there. But here, Jesus, does he have to make it worse? No. So what does he do? He gets small. You know, sometimes as Christians, we make ourselves bigger and better than others to make them feel small. But Jesus did the exact opposite. He said, no, no, in this situation, they don't, they don't need some judgmental legalist making themselves bigger in this situation. Let me just get smaller. Let me just get up close and hear him. Because people are going to tell you, oh, I hate God. I don't believe in God. I think he's terrible. I think he's this, that, 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 and go on and just, and just stop and just listen and just say, well, tell me about that. And immediately you will see a guard come down with that person because life hurts. Life wounds. Because we've all experienced deep hurt, betrayal, sickness, and sadness. And then the condemnation that comes on top of it. There's a verse in Malachi chapter number two. It says something very strong. It says, God hates divorce. It's literally what the verse says. It says, God hates it. You know why we don't want to ever touch that verse? Because over 50% of every relationship ends in divorce. But can I tell you what God did not say? He did not say he hates divorcees. He just hates anything that would cause division. But yet, we miss that. God is not ever saying, I hate people. 
He sent his son to die on the cross for people because he loves people. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them that walk in Christ. There, there is no more condemnation. But yet we somehow begin to feel like it's our responsibility to leverage his condemnation as if that's going to help the world. And I've been guilty of it. And I think you maybe at times have been guilty at using condemnation. But that is not going to help people when we're trying to evangelize and bring them to the gospel. If anything, it's going to push them away. And I want to show you something else because here's the reality of it. We are trying to see people that are over here who we would say lost and we want to get them all the way over here to where we would say saved or we could use the word we used last week, found. Will condemnation make them want to be saved? Now, when anybody comes to me and says, hey, you look terrible. I think you need to go do some push-ups. I think you should not have that bowl of cereal. I'm like, you know what? Just out of spite, I'm not going to do that. Just because that's just my will coming up. You want to force me to do something that's not going to work. I went to a school, and they would often talk, uh, talk about how to help with parenting. And they said this. They said, rules without relationship breeds rebellion. You see, what we are trying to do is we are trying to bring correction without any connection. That's what the church has been really good at. Correction with no connection. And we have got to get back to as a church that we lead with connection. Then you can come in with any correction. And correction sounds like a strong word at our church and our staff. We say like this, can I give you some feedback? That means you goofed, you messed up, you did something dumb. But we're going to use a nicer word to fix it. Can I give you some feedback? Because that didn't go right. Didn't go how you wanted it or we wanted it. And it caused the problems. So we got to fix it. So instead of bringing the correction first, we want to bring it in a tone where there's a relationship. How many parents we lose our children because we are simply running on a deficit. Every relationship has an emotional bank account. And every time you bring correction, there is a withdrawal. Whether the correction is necessary and needed or unnecessary and not needed, it's still a withdrawal either way. You say, hey, but my teenager, they snuck out. They did this. Yeah, that's going to be a withdrawal. And eventually enough withdrawals leads you into a deficit, which is bankruptcy. And then when you bankrupt the relationship, it ends in the relationship breaking apart. And yet Christians, we do this too. You have a coworker that you bring condemnation. You should go to church. You should do this. You should not do that. Then that's correction without a connection. And the church has to lead with a connection because when you have a connection with somebody, they will see that you have something that they want and they will begin making steps to follow you as you follow Jesus and they're getting closer and closer to Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. Or you can keep trying it your way and bring in more and more condemnation. And let's use a Dr. Phil word. How's that working out for you? It doesn't. That's why Jesus doesn't use condemnation. Now, was she guilty of condemnation? Yes or no, church? Yes. Jesus is still saying, you're not innocent. And this is the problem where we get, I grew up independent, fundamental, Baptist, okay? It's legalistic, okay? What does that mean? That meant uh, no, no, like shorts at summer camp. We couldn't wear shorts on the guys. The girls couldn't wear pants. It meant that I didn't go to movies. It means I stayed away from the mall and I didn't listen to rock and roll music. None of that. I wasn't allowed to go to water parks. There was all kinds of things that I wasn't allowed to do. Very legalistic. All of it. And it's real easy to think that I'm better than people because all these things I didn't do. But the reality is that's the farthest thing from what should happen. 
But we feel like condemnation will help people, but it doesn't. Notice this. First of all, Jesus, he didn't condemn. And some of us, the reason we have a problem that Jesus didn't condemn is because we think, well, if he didn't condemn, then he had to compromise on the truth. Notice this. Verse number 11. Let's look at it again. He asked the woman, where are your accusers? Where are there any there? And she says, no one, Lord. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you. But that's not the end of the verse, is it? The end of the verse says, go and sin no more. Did Jesus compromise on truth? No. You see, that is the perfect balance of grace and truth. It's the perfect balance. But yet sometimes we're afraid that if we don't condemn, then we're compromising. And Jesus in no way, shape, or form compromised on the truth, did he? But he waited till the end to bring the truth after he had built the relationship, after he had gotten down and said, I'm with you here now in this. Jesus is saying, I'm in the middle with this. You are not alone. As he looked her in the eye, as all these men are staring down at her in her uh, humiliation and putting her down, he says, no, 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 I'm, I'm here. I'm getting small. I'm right here with you. And we, if we're going to reach people, have to get into their situation. Now, understand, Jesus is called the friend of sinners, okay? But he's not the friend of sin. There's a difference. He's the friend of sinners, but he's not the friend of sin. Jesus hates sin. He died on the cross to deal with sin. But you and I, we have to be willing to say, you know what? I'm okay with showing up at somebody's house in their moment of need so I can be Jesus to them, so I can love them, so I can be there and not bring the condemnation. And just because you didn't bring condemnation does not mean you compromise on the truth. You didn't compromise on the truth. And so many times we feel like, well, my background says I have to be this. Otherwise, I'm a compromiser. No, you're not. And sadly, we've gotten to a group of Christians where we love to quote, he was full of grace and truth. It's all about the truth and they can't handle the truth. But I'm going to beat them over the head with it. The truth doesn't need to be defended. It's the truth. It always comes out on top because it's the truth. Truth always comes to the surface. It always is brought to light. But yet we in our urgency to like bring people to Jesus, we think we got to leverage that. But I want you to see something equally powerful. Jesus didn't condemn. Jesus didn't compromise. And notice this, this is powerful. Jesus didn't withhold compassion. You say, I know, I, I, I get that, Pastor. Yeah, look at all that compassion he showed on the woman. No, not the woman. Do you see who he was the most compassionate to in this passage? Oh, the character is not the woman in this passage. This is not about the woman. Verse number three. Then the scribes and Pharisees, they're the ones that he showed the greatest compassion because they did the worst deed. Because they're the ones that betrayed, blackmailed, baited. They are totally guilty. And Jesus could have gone after them. But is that what he did? No. Jesus didn't withhold compassion to the worst, most vile, ugly, filthy people. Once again, I remind you that many scholars believe that the man who was committing to act with the woman then was going to turn around and stone her to death. He's one of those. They didn't just send him on his way. No, they who planned this. 
This was their own little horrible scheme. And here they gather, and Jesus, with this compassion, he shows them, and you say, how do we know he has compassion? Because Jesus begins to write on the ground, and we don't know what he wrote on the ground. We don't. The only thing that's interesting about writing on the ground is this. Typically, the Greek word, haha, some of you Bereans, you're going to love this. I'm going to use some Greek. Mark it down. Here it is. It's typically, when you write something down, it's the word graphene. It means to write. But that's not the Greek word that Jesus uses here when he says write. It's the word cartographini, which means to write down a record against someone. These men bring this woman to her. And think about this. Jesus says, okay, I wasn't going to do this, but now I'm going to do it. And he starts writing their record. You know, there's been some times where I've gone to my parents and said, oh, man, I messed up. And you know what my parents have done? We knew we were just praying for you to get it right on your own. And then you're like, oh, they knew the whole time you didn't ground me, you didn't take away my car, you didn't... You knew the whole time? God knew the whole time everything we've done. And isn't that his compassion? That he's like, I'm writing it down. You're just like, wow, you knew God. And you loved me anyway? Wow, you're amazing, God. I'm going to end with this sentence. Jesus is not fond of sinners. He's not fond of you. He's your friend. That's what he said. I'm your friend. You ever had that best friend? That even if you don't talk to each other for years, you can just pick up right where you left off. And it's like nothing's ever happened. I had a best friend. The reality is we only spent a summer traveling the country evangelizing in 2005. We see each other every couple of years. But whenever we talk, which is rare and few, we just pick up the conversation. And you know what forged our friendship? Not because we liked the same sports team. Not because we were similar. It was because of our shared experiences. That's where we built our bond. And Jesus is saying, I want to have a shared experience with you. That's where I want this bond to be built. That's why I want to have a relationship with you. I want to walk with you. I want to be in this with you. That's what Jesus wants this morning with you. You don't have to wonder, what does Jesus think about me? He's your friend. You see, we said it like this. Jesus didn't just find you. And some of us think that. I'm like God's little trophy. He just pulls me out. Like, look at this terrible sinner. Look at this person. I saved this person. Wow. Now put him back on the shelf. I found them. That's not how God treats you. Oh, well, we know, Pastor. You said last week we were part of the family. Yes, we're in the family. We're in the family. Let me be honest with you. I have a large family, and there's some of them I'm not too fond of. We got one person who'll be honest in church. The rest of us are sinners. Condemnation. And what's the adage about family? You don't get to pick your family, but you can pick your. So Jesus picked us. It wasn't like God's like, hey, guess what? Um, you're getting a new brother and sister. Yeah, they kind of suck. <laughs> but just you're Jesus, so you got to be nice to them. 
Now we know that's not how it goes down, but in our mind, we're kind of like, yeah, but really, come on, God. You really don't like me because I don't really like myself at times. I really struggle with my own attitude sometimes. Like I know I got issues. I know it's just not my friends and my family and my spouse that just thinks I got issues. I know that you do too. And God's like, yeah, 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 but all of that doesn't matter because I'm your friend and we're gonna get through it. And that's the power of Jesus. That's the attractional part of Jesus. So what culture needs is not more condemnation. What culture needs is not people who compromise. What they need is people with that compassion. It says, hey, Jesus is your friend and I wanna show you what friendship looks like. And it could look like so practical that when you're at Starbucks, you pay for the person behind you and you say, oh, by the way, I wanna invite you to my church. It looks so practical that you mow your neighbor's lawn. You see it's overgrown, just like, yeah, I thought I'd help you out. It looks so practical that you could simply bake a dessert for a neighbor or a friend and just say, hey, I was thinking about you. I, I, I just thought I'd do this. That you just say, hey, I knew that you were going through a hard time. Hey, let me fill up your tank of gas. Hey, let me take you out to eat. Hey, let me do this for you. I want you to know that Jesus cares about you. And so I'm going to go above and beyond to show you what friendship looks like. You don't have to do anything for me because that's what Jesus does for us. And that's what is so attractional about the church. And that's what we got to get back to evangelism, that it's this friendship evangelism. Who wouldn't want to be somebody's friend? You know, I talked to one Christian and... Um, I said, hey, you haven't been coming to church. He's like, oh man, I converted. I'm a Mormon now. I was like, say what? He's like, oh yeah, I didn't tell you. He's like, they're just so nice. They're just so nice. They bought me groceries. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. My family needed groceries. I was like, I didn't know you needed groceries. He's like, yeah, you just didn't notice. Oh, and they just show up. They make sure my kids are taken care of. They just check up on us, little things like that. So we're Mormon now. I was like, wow. Wow. See, I could have bought groceries. I could have just noticed. Now, I'm not going to wear that the rest of my life and just kind of sit in that condemnation. But I'll say, okay, God, teach me from that. Because I can get going really fast in life like you and I. Life is busy kids, ministry, work, that we can fail to just stop and say, hey, I can't do for everybody, but let me find one person. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus walked through a crowd of hurting and sick in John 5 and healed one person at the pool of Bethesda. All of the people there were sick and needed healing, but he only healed one. Sometimes all you can do is care for one person because of what you're going through. You see, God, this is it. All I can do, the very best that I could do is pay for that person's McDonald's. And please tell me they got the two for five because I do not have money for anything extra. It's inflation. You're like, you know what? Give them the dollar coffee. That's, that's, you know. But don't you think that'll make the difference? How much more powerful your testimony when they say, man, Jesus is real to you. You mowed my lawn. You brought me a meal. You showed up when family was uh, abandoning me. I'm so proud of our church. I'll close with this illustration. We had a man, a part of our church, um, I think meant the best, but a difficult man. Single, divorced, kids estranged. Family really struggled with him. Had a lot of issues. His funeral was a week and a half ago. I was really concerned that nobody was going to be there. 
because he was that type of a person. Like you knew like, hey, he's a Christian, he's going to heaven, but I just knew that there's been some struggles. So we have an intern, Edward. I was like, Edward, wear a suit. We're going to go to a funeral. I really don't think anybody's going to be there. That was my thought going in. And then I looked down as I gone out and you, immediately I realized there wasn't a lot of people. It was his mom, his aunt, his ex-wife, his two daughters. And then one by one, people from this church showed up. This guy was not the type of guy that brought you a meal. He didn't work on your house. He didn't fix anything for you. He's a good person. I, I do believe there were some things, but over the last couple of years, what you would call high maintenance, and I watched as his life group loved him through all of it, and not because they owed him anything. Jackie went and fixed his car. I know the backage made meals, visited him in the hospital. Oh yeah, he was in the hospital in Palo Alto. It wasn't close, wasn't convenient. Oh, he lived on the other side of town, needed rides. And I just watched and it blessed me so much to see that that's the difference of our church. That they will say, yep, here's a guy that can't do anything. Did it, he didn't leave behind a fortune. He didn't leave behind anything. Nobody would have even known that they, this life group did all this stuff for him. But you could look over and there were more people from our church at his funeral than from his own family. And I said, wow, that is a powerful testimony of what the church ought to be. That to me, and then when I reached out to the family, they were just overwhelmed by it. Reached out to his daughters and to his brother. And they go to other churches and they were like, nobody showed up from our churches. Nobody. But you guys came in force. I was just like, we're pursuing center and as we grow and mature it's not about picking our corner it's about saying God I'm trying to pursue you and I may skew to evangelism because people are hurting and need to reach out but ultimately that's what's going to draw people to Christ so let everybody else bring the condemnation you just say hey yeah 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 come on can we stand with heads bowed and eyes closed Thank you again for spending time with us today, and a special thanks to those who give generously to Southridge Church. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about Southridge, you can follow us on social media at Southridge Now. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share it with a friend, or even take a screenshot and share it on your social story. Make sure you tag Southridge Church and let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.